Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming out this morning. I've been blessed by our singing already as well. And and I hope we are looking forward to worshiping God together this morning. Why don't we open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Starting at verse 12 to 16. And why don't you uh, stand together with me as we read from God's Word this morning? So, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, I'll be reading from the ESV. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have heard, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So please accept these words as the very words of our living Lord. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you are our hope. I thank you, Lord, that you are our strength. We need you this morning, Lord. I need you. Father, that you would open our hearts, Lord, to receive your word. I pray, God, that I would be able to communicate clearly what your word has to say. I pray this in your name. Amen. I just put this on a chair. Almost wrecked already. I'm not sure how I want to get through this. But. So, in order for us to properly understand the text that we read, let's spend a couple minutes, just a little bit of time, just looking at the background and the context of this passage. Hebrews is primarily a book about the supremacy of Christ, who Christ is, and how He is greater. A summary outline of the book would probably look something like this. We have chapter 1, verses, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 18, that Jesus is greater than angels. In chapter 3, verse 1 to four thirteen, we have Jesus is greater than Moses. 
chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 1140, we have the supremacy of the new covenant in Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 1 to 1325, we have practical perseverance of the believers. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown. We are not sure who wrote it. There was a point in church history, more so in the first couple of centuries, that there were some who believed Paul might be the author, but even there in the other church fathers' writings, it was unclear. But it is hardly the popular opinion today. And there are many clues that would testify to Paul probably not being the author, which uh, I will definitely allow you to search yourselves one time if you, if you desire. Um, it, was, it is believed that Hebrews was written sometime after the year 65 A.D., it's around 65 AD that the Apostle Paul was martyred. He was beheaded for his confession. The author of Hebrews was also an acquaintance of Timothy as Paul was. In all of Paul's travels, he never describes a time where Timothy was imprisoned. Yet the author of Hebrews certainly implies that Timothy was in fact imprisoned. In, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, we read, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. And if you go back, I think it's in verse 3, the context, he speaks of those who are in prison, so the context would definitely fit that Timothy was in prison and he had been in fact released now. So thus we can determine Timothy must have been in prison after the year 65 AD, which was after Paul died, because Paul never mentions Timothy being in prison, and Hebrews was also written then after 65 AD. We can also determine Hebrews was most likely written before A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, we had the temple destroyed in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, in chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and 3, the author speaks of the priestly duties in the present tense, as if they're actually still happening right now. Although Jesus had, although Christ had done away with the, with the obligation of the uh, sacrifices, Obviously, the unbelieving Jews were still offering sacrifices in the temple. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 to 3 reads, For every high priest, and notice the tense here, it's, it's all in the present tense, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And we also have in chapter 8.13, we have where uh, the author speaks of the Old Covenant as ready to vanish away. A couple things about the audience of the book of Hebrews. They were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic simply means they had adopted Greek culture, they spoke the Greek language. We know this because the author of Hebrews, when he quotes the Old Testament, he actually quoted from the Greek Septuagint. So they would have been familiar with the Greek language. They were most likely Hellenistic Jews who had adopted Greek culture. The audience of Hebrews were persecuted. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled Jews from Rome, and starting in AD 64, Nero began persecuting Christians. Remember, Brother James alluded to that last Sunday as well. Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to go there, 32 to 35, speaks of persecutions from the past and present. Hebrews 10, 35, verse 30, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The word for confidence in the Greek in verse 35 has the, implies the idea of being bold in the face of dignitaries or, or public officials. It was probably a form of public government or public persecution, which also makes sense when the author speaks of them being in prison. It is public government and officials who puts people in prison. We also know these Hebrews, they were near apostasy. They were in danger of turning away from what they had been taught concerning Jesus Christ. We see warnings in Hebrews all throughout, warning them about apostasy. This, is not, uh, this does not mean that they would lose their salvation, but that they would prove themselves to never having been saved in the first place. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain, they are, all are not of us. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, and I use this verse as kind of a springboard into the text that I'll be speaking on today. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, I believe is key to understanding these intense warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 12 reads this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We see here how the author is addressing the congregation as a whole. No different than if a preacher today addressed the congregation standing, uh, sitting before him as brothers and sisters. He's calling them brothers, but at the same time knowing there are probably individual uh, unbelievers in their midst. But he's addressing them as brothers as a whole. Note the word in verse 312, unbelieving hearts. No believer has an unbelieving heart. Anybody who has an unbelieving heart would be referred to as an unbeliever. They have gone to church all their lives, yet they have failed to ever examine themselves in light of Scripture, and re reality remained unconverted. And Paul addresses this as well in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, which reads, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I want you to keep Hebrews 3.12 in mind while I'm speaking today. This is the springboard from where we're going. The Hebrews author is pleading with them. Note in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, you need to respond. The Hebrews author is telling his audience, don't be like the unbelieving hardened Israelites who wandered in the desert and always continued in disobedience and wanted to be like the world. We have a, a, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the Israelites, they demanded a king from Samuel. And Samuel did not want to give them a king. And God said, go ahead and give them a king, not because they've rejected you, Samuel, but because they have rejected me as their king. Go ahead, give them their king. But tell them what this king will do. He will take your sons and your daughters and bring them off to war. He will take away your land and give it to your, their, uh, his servants. So Samuel tells them this, and they don't care. They say, we want to be like the rest of the nations. We want to have a king who will fight for us. 
Imagine, you don't, they did not want the God of the king, the king of the universe to fight for their, their battles anymore. Although he had proven himself over and over and over again, but they continued in disobedience. They wanted to be like the world. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. 1 Samuel 8 verses 19 and 20 speaks of that. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. So the Hebrews author is calling them to obedience, to self-examination. Please take care lest you are found in disobedience like the Israelites. The Hebrews author loves his audience. And he is calling them to repentance with a pastoral heartfelt plea. They were fooling themselves and others. The ones with an unbelieving heart. But as we use this text to go into Hebrews 4, we are uh, 12 to 16, we, are, we see we are utterly unable to fool God. The author continues this pastoral plea for true repentance for the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 leading up to our text. So let's turn back to Hebrews 4 verses, verse 11 to 16. I'll read starting in verse 11 this time. Let's just read it one more time, keeping in mind Hebrews 3.12 as well. And how the Hebrews author is pleading with them towards obedience up to this point. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So now he's telling them to quit trying to fool God. He knows who you truly are. I wish to take three points from our text today. Point number one, God's work through his word. Number two, Christ's work as high priest. And number three, God's grace through the work of Christ. Verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verses 12 and 13 are kind of the ending section of Hebrews where the author is explaining to the audience why Jesus is the greater Moses. Whereas verses 6, 14 to 16 are kind of the doorway into the section of Hebrews that explains how Jesus is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yet these verses are also connected, as we see in verse 14 with a connective phrase, since then. Another thing we notice is how verses 12 and 13 intricately link the written word of God with Christ the eternal word. See in verse 13 how we see personal pronouns being used now. He, him. This is why the written word is living and active. It finds its source truly in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. We see a transition in those verses, how He used to speak to the people by the prophets. But, it, but 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, Christ, the eternal Word of God. And in chapter 4, he links the written Word of God with Christ, the eternal Word. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on verses 12 and 13, says this, The Holy Scriptures are the Word of God. When God sets it home by His Spirit, or when God plants it in our hearts, or sets it in our hearts by His Spirit, it convinces powerfully, it converts powerfully, and it comforts powerfully. It makes a soul that has long been proud to be humble, and a perverse spirit to be meek and obedient. Sinful habits that are become, as it were, natural to the soul and rooted deeply in it are separated and cut off by this sword. It will discover to men their thoughts and purposes, the vileness of many, the bad principles that they are moved by, the sinful ends they act to. The word will show the sinner all that is in his heart. Let us hold fast the doctrines of Christian faith in our heads, its enlivening principles in our hearts, the open profession of it in our lips, and be subject to it in our lives. Since the Word of God is not dead, but it is truly living and active, it is able to save. 1 Peter 1.23 Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. It is able to sanctify. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And also 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Because the Word of God is not dead, but it is living and active, it is also able to reveal truth and set free. John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because the Word of God is living and active, it is able to keep pure. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Because the word of God is living and active, it is able to teach, reproof, correct, and train in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Because the word of God is living and active, it is our off offensive weapon Offensive weapon for spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6.17 And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the sword of, our, of the Spirit. Because the Word of God is living and active, it lays us bare before a holy God. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And lastly, because the Word of God is truly living and active, it is able to judge us. John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we see the Word of God is living and it is active. It is living and it is busy. It is living and it is occupied. It is living and it is involved. And it is vigorous 
we see an active metaphor used by the prophet Jeremiah. Let's turn to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? The context here is false prophets who falsely claim to be speaking on behalf of the Lord. Their words have no power. It is only God's true word that is living and active. Words apart from the living God are dead. They are dormant words, and they are an offense to a holy God. When someone says, God told me, or thus says the Lord, walk with extreme caution. God does not appreciate us taking dead words and pretending they are living words from God. Let's read the text, starting in verse 16, actually, to verse 33, just to get kind of an idea how God only considers his own words to be living and active. So starting in verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell a dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest says, asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. We see here that God takes this very, very seriously. His words are living and active, and His words alone. Words apart from God are filled with vain hopes, as we read in verse 16 and 17. Not only is the Word of God 
living and active, but it is like a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns your thoughts and the intentions of your thoughts. Not only does it discern your thoughts, but it discerns the intentions of your thoughts. Having seen severe persecution, remember the audience knows what persecution is like. The audience would well have understood the analogy of a two-edged sword that cleaves, a two-edged sword that pierces asunder, that pierces in two, and how it is able to expose the inside of a man. It carries a picture of being cleaved in two. The Word of God pierces asunder, and we have been divided into. We have been opened up to full exposure and completely dissected before a holy God. Sometimes this verse is used to attempt to build the biblical anthropology of who man is, that man is body, soul, and spirit. But that is not the intention of this verse, and it is not what it means. We see a separation there of soul and spirit, but we assume joints and marrow means body. But if joints and marrow mean body, we can also assume that soul and spirit may be our one as well. So in the context of this verse, this has actually nothing to do with building or understanding who man is. Nor is its intent to mean the soul and spirit are separate any more than the body is separate from joints and marrow. Its only purpose is to use these words to show how we are fully exposed before the Lord. We cannot hide from His sight. We cannot deceive Him by making our sin sound less than what it really is. For not only does God see your thoughts, but He sees the intentions of our thoughts. We are unable to hide from Him. God's Word is a comfort, and it is a source of spiritual food to those who believe, but it is a judgment upon those who, does not, who do not believe. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are exposed to whom we must give an account. The Nasby version says this, reads it in this way, All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of the Lord. This verse speaks of God's omniscience and His omnipresence, meaning that He is everywhere. Omnipresence means that He is everywhere. Omniscience means that He is all-knowing. Remember back in Jeremiah 23, 24, he says, I am a God at hand, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, not a God far away? Rhetorical question. Can a man hide himself in places that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? God is omnipresent and God is omniscient. These questions are rhetorical. Of course we can't hide from our Creator. Likewise in Job, we read in 34 verses 21 to 22, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where the evildoers may hide themselves, Job says. So we are utterly unable to hide from God. We are completely exposed and unsheltered. We are in the midst of a storm. We have no shelter. Martin Luther understood this well. In the years before his conversion, he was desperately seeking peace with God. When he read scriptures, he knew he was a vile wretch. When he was a new monk, monk, he gave away his possessions, even eating utensils and clothing. In the monastery, seven times a day, including once in the middle of night, he prayed and sang together with other monks. Speaking was only allowed at certain times, and laughing was strictly forbidden. Luther obeyed these rules diligently. In spite of all these efforts, he was never sure God would accept him. 
He read scripture, but all he seemed to find were passages of God's anger against sin. And Luther didn't know how he would ever escape this anger. It plagued him. He would constantly confess his sins to a senior monk. But it only provided brief comfort. Sometimes he would return after only a few minutes because a new sinful thought had crept into his mind. The senior monks became so frustrated with him and told him to only confess big sins. Don't worry about the little ones. But this made no sense to Luther because the Bible taught that God hated all sin, big and small. So he only became frustrated. In 1510, Luther had the opportunity to travel from Germany to Rome where he hoped to finally attain God's forgiveness and his approval. And he walked 1,000 miles in two months. Once he arrived in Rome, he visited the seven most important churches in Rome all in one day while fasting. He also climbed a special stairway of 28 marble steps known as the Holy Steps on his knees. And he recited the Lord's Prayer on each step. According to the Roman Catholic Church, this helped people to attain forgiveness for themselves or others. But he was left with no peace. The steps couldn't do it for him. Years later, as Luther was struggling with Romans 117, he finally realized that the righteousness of God in this verse was not a righteousness that he could produce by good works or obedience to the church, but that he had, it had to be a righteousness that God would give him. He finally understood this, and he was truly converted. He said at that moment he felt he had entered into paradise itself through open gates. The doctrine of justification by faith alone would become the foundation of the Protestants at the time. And Luther understood what it meant to be exposed. He truly understood what it meant to be exposed before a holy and a righteous God who hates sin and to whom we must give an account. After exhorting the people to examine themselves, the Hebrews author exhorted the people to examine themselves in 3.12 to 13. The author reminds the people, it is to this God, this God, the God to whom we are completely exposed, to whom we will all give an account one day. It is no use to pretending you're saved when you're not. It is no use pretending you don't have sin when you do. 1 John 1.8 says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but we have not deceived God. And the truth is not in us. It would do the Hebrew audience no good to foolishly ignore the author's warning concerning apostasy, as it does us no good to foolishly ignore these warnings. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We will all one day give an account before this God. 2nd point, Christ worked as high priest. Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Verse 14 leads the listeners now into a lesson of Christ's role as high priest. The author spends multiple chapters on this role, but we'll only look at verses 15 and 16, or 14 to 16. 
Because Jesus has passed through the heavens, He truly is the Son of God. It is only the Son of God who could truly pass through the heavens. Hebrews 1 verse 3. If you turn to the left of Hebrews chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because the Son of God is our high priest, we are able to hold to this confession, this confession of faith. We need to hold fast. We need to embrace it. We need to cling to it. And we need to surrender to our confession. Again, remember the context of persecution. This is the exhortation that the Hebrews author is giving to his audience. In the midst of persecution, hold fast. Do not surrender your confession to the authorities who are coming with sword and demanding that you surrender your confession or be put in prison. Do not surrender it. That's what the Hebrews author is trying to tell them. He is telling them Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than the angels. He is greater than the high priest. In the Old Testament, it was the duty of the high priest to present this, a sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and sprinkle sacrificial blood on the mercy seat. By the time of the New Testament, the role of the high priest had grown into a political and economic power, and with it came abusive power. A greater high priest is needed. Christ is that high priest. The Old Covenant, the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, all point towards the coming Messiah and are merely a shadow of the what was to come. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the, thing, of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, so the law is only a shadow, it is not the true form of the realities that it was trying to teach to the people. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law could never do that. Now Christ, as the preeminent high priest, he has given himself as a sacrifice for atonement. It is now Christ in his role of high priest where he walked into the Holy of Holies and he gave himself as a sacrifice. He became the unblemished lamb without spot because he was the sinless son of God. His sacrifice was sufficient once for all time. Unlike the pre-sacrifice under the old covenant which had to be performed year after year after year. Skip down a couple verses in chapter 10 to 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The law was never given to make us right. The whole point of the law was to point to the one who could make us right. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. We see this when Adam and Eve sinned. An innocent animal had to be taught to die. An innocent animal was killed to cover them. 
A ram was given to Abraham to take the place of his son Isaac. A lamb without spot or blemish had to be killed and the blood would need to be put on the doorpost of the entrance so death would pass over in Egypt. An innocent lamb had to be sacrificed under the Mosaic law each time someone sinned. Each time someone sinned, an unblemished lamb had to be found and sacrificed for that sin. An innocent lamb had to be sacrificed under the Mosaic law every time. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And this is why. Because death is the payment for sin. You see, whenever someone sins against a holy and perfect God, the payment must be death. And in order to atone for someone's sins, either the person committing the sin has to die, or innocent blood had to be shed. Something innocent had to die to pay for those sins. Such as the lamb without spot or blemish. The lamb needed to be perfect. And that is why Jesus is called the, Son, the Lamb of God. He is the innocent blood, able to redeem God's people. Not only was it the priest's duty to offer sacrifice, but it was also their duty to the mediator, to be the mediator before God, or be, before God for men, making intercession to God on behalf of us, on behalf of all men. Jesus is also that mediator for us now. He's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He can say to the Father, this person is innocent, not because of anything in them, but because of me. Because my blood covers them. Later on in Hebrews, Jesus is said to be the high priest after order of Melchizedek. This is something that the Bible teachers have not always been perfectly clear on, on this comparison. But something that actually sheds some interesting light on this, and although it's not really the point of the sermon, but I'll just, I'll just share it with you anyway. But something that sheds a little bit of light on this comes from a scroll that was found as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran Caves in 1947. It is from scroll, scroll Q11, Melchizedek, which simply just means it was found in cave number 11. But there it describes a false belief that the Jews had where Melchizedek would one day return as a high priest. It was a false belief that the Jews had in the, in the New Testament times where Melchizedek would return as a high priest. And when upon his returning, he would make a final atonement for the Jewish people and he would usher in God's judgment. He would usher in the end times. So if we, if we think about that in comparison, how Jesus is, in, in context, how Jesus is compared to Melchizedek, we can see that this is probably something that the original audience would have understood and would have thought of when they read this. So in verse 15 in chapter 4, he also tells us that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. So where verses 12 and 13 are a judgment to unbelievers, they also represent a sense of comfort to the believer. On the one hand, it is a fearful thought to be laid bare and exposed before the eyes of the Lord. But on the other hand, he fully knows our weaknesses and he has sympathy for us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is our comfort and He is our joy. This does not mean He is sympathetic towards our sin. 
with an indifferent attitude and just kind of shrugs it off? Absolutely not. But that he is sympathetic in the sense that in the sense that he forgives sins when it is brought in confession before the throne of grace. Remember back in verse 12 and 13, how we are divided into and how we are laid bare before the eyes of God. Yet Christ came to make a propitiation for our sins. He sees us and yet he came to make a propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17 and verse 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Propitiation means that sin has been atoned for. God's wrath has been satisfied. Romans chapter 5 tells us how we are under as unbelievers. We were all once under the wrath of God. And then Romans 5, 9 says we were now saved from the wrath of God. God's righteous anger towards sin has been satisfied. That's what propitiation means. It is more than just a simple atonement. But it is where God's righteous anger has been appeased. So we find grace when we come to his throne as unbelievers for salvation. We find grace when we come to his throne as believers to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus was fully God and fully man, but as human, Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted. Yet he remained without sin. Jesus also provides us with an excellent example of how to defeat sin. As I already talked about before, how scripture points back to itself and helping us to defeat our sins in order to grow and to be sanctified and be kept pure. And we now see Jesus providing that same example in Luke chapter 4 when, Satan was, or when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. Every temptation that Satan threw at Jesus, Jesus responded with, chat, with scripture. Every one of them. Jesus answered Satan directly from scripture. He defeated temptation with scripture. Jesus, the Son of God, did. He demonstrates how Scripture must be at the center of our battle against sin. Because Scripture is living and active, and it is able to do that. When Jesus came to earth as a man, he was not treated as a king. Isaiah 53.3 says he tells us he was despised and he was rejected. He understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses. So number three, God's grace through the work of Christ. So, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we be confident of this grace? Because grace is rooted in God's character. Psalm, turn to Psalm 145, verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Why do we need grace? Why do we need grace? Because we have been laid bare and exposed before the eyes of God. A God who demands perfection. A God who is holy. A God who is righteous. A God who says, be perfect as I am perfect. And be holy as I am holy. That is why we need grace, and we could never live up to that standard. 
as was already demonstrated before, that is why the law was given. To show us we aren't able to live to God's standard. And to show our need for the grace of God. We cannot produce this grace in ourselves. We need grace because we were dead in our sins. We weren't kicking and fighting to stay afloat in the water. And God threw us a life preserver and told us to get on while he safely stood on the boat beside us, watching us flounder around in the water. We were dead at the bottom of the sea and God reached down and breathed life into our hearts. That is grace. Where is this grace found? Where is this grace found? It is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As high priest, he made a sacrifice on behalf of our sins. An innocent, perfect, and stainless Lamb of God without any blemish. We find this grace as we approach His throne. It is a promise. Although I hope we would never presume upon God's grace, that would be a terrible error. To presume upon His grace would make it sound as if sin was no big deal. It's no big deal. God will forgive me. That's presuming upon God's grace. It is a terrible and arrogant error. God's grace is promised when true repentance and confession take place. In Augustine's Confessions from the 4th century, he recounts an incident where he steals pears from his neighbor. He describes how he stole them, not because he was hungry, or even wanted them, but because he wanted to steal. He writes, I lusted to thieve. Even though it was foul, I loved it. So it is with all of us. We all have at some point lusted after our own sin. We have desired our own sin. It has taken a hold of us and it has satisfied our flesh. We are not simply committing sin. We are sin. From deep within, we are sin. It is our fallen nature. It is our human nature to commit sins. And to love them in our fallen state. That is why there is this battle between flesh and spirit, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 7, he asks, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, the answer lies in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verse 11 to 18, describes our fallen nature. It says, no, he's, uh, Paul is saying, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And before we think that maybe that doesn't include us, let's go down to verse 23 in Romans chapter 3. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is included in this. Romans 3.23 is just a summary verse of what he is speaking of before then. Romans 5.8 to 10 tells us that not only did God die for our sins while we were still his enemies, but he also reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies. That is grace, brothers and sisters, and that grace is unmerited favor. 
remember, God knows everything about me. He knows everything about you. We are fully exposed before the eyes of the Lord. A summary of verse of Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 would read would be this. We are saved by grace through faith for good works. Since we cannot earn our grace from God by works. If we could, it would not be grace. And grace can never be something deserved. If we could fight and pull ourselves onto the life raft, it wouldn't be grace. I would have earned my place on the life raft. Again, grace is being put in the life raft by someone else. It is being revived at the bottom of the sea. So since we cannot earn our grace from God by works, the only thing left for us to do is acknowledge God's grace by our faith, which coincidentally itself was a gift from God. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, or the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Augustine in the fourth century writes, The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord must be understood as that by which alone men are delivered from evil. And, but without which they do absolutely no good thing, whether in thought or will, and in affection or in deed. Romans 8.8 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you're probably thinking, I thought he was talking about God's grace. Why is he talking about our sin? I speak of our sin to describe God's grace. If we do not understand our sin, we will never understand God's grace. So now that we have seen how we are laid bare, we are exposed and unsheltered before a righteous God and wholly depend upon His grace due to the sin that lies within our fallen humanity. Now that God sees us fully and completely for who we are and what we do in private, we are to with confidence his throne. There's nothing hidden from you that God does not know. What you do in private, what's in your heart, the intentions of your heart. And then he says, approach with confidence. Approach with certainty. Approach with assurance. Approach with boldness. Approach with courage. Why? Why can we approach His throne with confidence? Because we are covered in the blood of Christ. 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Verse 19. Verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. Go back to 19 for a second. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? The blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession. We see that word confession again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It is not our faithfulness. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another because of this hope because of the of the assurance that we have we can approach the throne of god with with confidence because of the blood of jesus we encourage one another because we are encouraged in this and all the more as you see the dread day drawing near we can be confident in the presence of our king because sin's penalty which is death has been paid we have been justified 2 Corinthians 5.21, a familiar passage. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see this transaction taking place where God took our sin, he put them on Jesus Christ, and he took Christ's righteousness and he put it on us, so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that when we approach his throne of grace, God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of God. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the blood of Christ has covered us. That is why we are confident before his throne. Not because anything in us, but because of what Jesus has done. We needed a righteousness outside of ourselves, like Luther. We needed a righteousness from outside of ourselves. Our righteousness is not enough. God is so much greater than any earthly king. Yet God calls us to approach his throne with confidence. Don't try and approach the throne of an English monarch or any monarchy for that example, for, for that uh, matter. You won't get far. And these are earthly, mortal human kings. They are unapproachable. Yet the king who made the heavens and the earth calls us to approach his throne. He is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords. Isaiah 46, 9-10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being, create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 135, 5 to 7, For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is our God. It is this God, the God of the Bible, who says, approach with confidence. 
not because of what we have done, but because of what, has, what Christ has done on our behalf. At the throne, we may receive grace and mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, but grace is getting what we don't deserve. That is grace. As a believer, do you trust in God's promises to forgive when you sin? Do we? Do we trust in God's promises to forgive us when we sin? Or do you neglect to ask for forgiveness? Remember, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Do you remember that in eternity past, God already knew every sin you would commit because He is all-knowing? And yet He chose to bestow His love upon you anyway? Not because you were deserving, but because simply He loved you? And if you have never trusted Christ for salvation, today, as the Hebrew writer said, today is the day of salvation. Remember the Hebrews' warning to his audience, do not neglect so great a salvation. Take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. You are exposed before God. I am exposed before God. We are all exposed before God. We can't fool Him. He sees our darkest, our deepest, darkest secrets and sins. Yet you will find His grace and His mercy far exceed your greatest sin. Turn to Him today. Give yourself into the sovereign, loving care of the Father. At His throne, you will find grace and mercy. And there we will find that God rejoices in His children. Isaiah 62, 5 reads, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In closing, let's read Psalm 130 together. Starting in verse 1. Psalms 130, starting in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him, with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you to thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you how your word exposes us. Thank you, Lord, for your word, how it judges over us, Lord, but also as believers, how it is a, a word of mercy and of comfort and of grace and what tells us what you have done and how your word is living and active through the, through the blood of your Son. And I pray, God, that, that we would guard our hearts according to your word. And that we would be able to approach with confidence, Lord, knowing that your grace and your mercy far exceeds our sins. Let us be grateful, Lord. Let us come with a heart of repentance and confession before your throne. I pray this in your name. Amen.